Please turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. Uh, this summer I watched a documentary on K2. K2 is the second highest peak in the world. Highest is Everest. Uh, K2 is around 28,000. It's about 800 feet shorter than Everest. Uh, but even though it's second highest, it is more difficult than Everest, actually. Uh, and I think it was 2013, the latest statistics I could find. There were about 5,600 people who had actually summited out on Everest, and there were only 306 who had made it to the top of K2. It's, it's an exceptionally difficult climb. Not that Everest isn't, but K2 is even harder. It's called the Savage Mountain. I mean, you have to really be committed to make it to the top of K2. And if you ask people who, who attempt to summit, uh, you, know, you always get an answer that none of the rest of us can understand. You know, it's, uh, you know the mountains were calling or something. You go, whatever, that's crazy, right? But, but they don't have really like a rational, reasonable explanation. But they'll say, no matter, the, the risk is worth the reward. To stand on top of, of K2 and say I was there. And really, risky it, it is. If you look at uh, the statistics, uh, on Everest, for every 100 pers- people who summit, four die. But on K2, for every 100 people who make the summit, 29 die. So my son was watching this at the end of this documentary with me, and he said, we think, Dad, would you, would you want to try that? Would you do that? And I said, of course not. <laughs> of course not. No, I mean, no hesitation. I mean, no way. You know, the, the reward is not worth that risk to me. I can just imagine myself hanging on the side of the mountain, slowly dying, saying, you know, Brian, what were you thinking? Okay, the, the mountain was calling and she was saying, stay away, right? <laughs> Go to Starbucks, get a cup of coffee, look at a picture book. Don't come here. 33% chance you might die. But there are things I would give my life to. I'm not standing on the top of K2, but I would give my life uh, for some things. Remember when we started this series, I asked you that question, what would you give your life to? What would you commit everything to? Remember, uh, we're in the book of 2 Timothy, or if you're just joining us, we're looking at Paul's final letter that he wrote from prison to his disciple Timothy, his beloved child in the faith, Timothy. And he's saying, Timothy, I've given all for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, in a very short period of time, he would lose his life for the gospel. And he's saying, Timothy, love what I love. Live for what I live for. Timothy, I'm not calling you to make a small sacrifice for the gospel. I'm I'm challenging you you to be totally and completely committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Timothy, endure all things for the sake of the gospel. I want you to read with me 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it, eternal glory. The key word in this paragraph is endurance. Paul's saying, Timothy, endure for the gospel. Stick with Jesus no matter what. That word for endurance means literally to remain under, to stay under when you are under pressure for the gospel. Don't run. Don't try to hide. Don't try to escape. 
And, and don't just suffer silently. Instead, embrace this suffering for the gospel and stay under it. It's the same word that was used in Hebrews chapter 12 of Jesus. It says he endured the cross, despising the shame. He stayed under the pressure of the cross. He, he didn't pretend that the cross was pleasant, but he stayed. Right? Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if there's another way you can accomplish your will, let this cup of suffering pass from me. And yet, if this is the only way to accomplish salvation for all people, then I will stay under. I will remain. I will endure. I will endure. Cambridge Dictionary defines endurance like this. It is the ability to keep doing something difficult, unpleasant, or painful for a long time. That's endurance. Paul has in his mind the Christian life not as a sprint, but it's a marathon. And you have to stay in the race a long, long time. You know the Greeks invented this idea of marathon, right? According to legend, there was a soldier who was sent, on a, uh, sent with a message, Philippides is his name, and he left the battlefield of Marathon and he ran to Athens, about 26.2 miles. He was sent to run and deliver good news that the Greeks had defeated the Persians, and so he ran all 26.2 miles, roughly, without stopping, and he entered into the assembly to announce, uh, we have conquered, that is Nike, right, victory. And he announced to the assembly, we have, we have defeated the, the Persians, we have victory, and then he died, right? And so the moral of the story is, every year we should get lots of people to run 26.2 miles. No, actually, the moral of the story is, endure, right? Stick with Jesus, endure for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because we have the greatest announcement of victory Greater than a single battle of Greeks over Persians, this is the defeat of sin and death by our Savior, Jesus Christ. So endure all things for the sake of the gospel, Paul says. Why? Because the gospel is true, right? The gospel is the announcement of God's victory through Jesus. Read with me again, chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, Risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Why not quit? You stand up for Jesus and you're, and you're persecuted, or you're called to make disciples, to pass on the, the great treasure entrusted to you, and it requires you to suffer. Maybe physically you're up late at night, pouring your life into someone on behalf of the gospel. Or maybe you pour your life into behalf of, uh, on behalf of someone and, and they, they don't follow Jesus and, and they begin to walk away and your heart is broken and you're up late at night praying on your knees. Or maybe God calls you to sacrifice financially more than you feel comfortable in giving so that the gospel can go to all of the nations. Why persevere? Why endure? Why not quit? Paul says because the gospel is true. And what I find interesting here is that Paul summarizes his gospel in just two points, right? When, when he wrote to the Romans, he wrote them an entire book, which was the gospel, he writes to Timothy, he said, here's the gospel, two points, resurrection. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Right? The, the cross is essential because apart from the cross, the payment for sin was not made. But without resurrection, even the cross itself is meaningless. Because right? we don't know was Christ's payment accepted by God. So as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. 
You are still, in fact, in your sins. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't sacrifice for the gospel if there is no resurrection. But he says, Timothy, remember this. Jesus was raised from the dead. And then second, he says, remember my gospel. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant or seed of David. Why does he point that out? Well, he's, he's reckoning back to all of the promises that were made about God's Messiah, that God's Messiah, in fact, would return. And when he returns, he would set all things right. That is, Jesus Christ is the seed of David. He is the risen son of God, but he is also the future king, and he will return. So the gospel means this. Through Jesus Christ, your life can be set right. All of your sins can be removed. Past sins, present sins, the ones you will commit in the future, the debt entirely removed. God can set you right through Jesus, but God will also set the whole world right through Jesus. And the only thing that will set the world right is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heard a great sermon a few years ago, and the thesis was this. The local church is the only hope of the world, and the reason for that is that the church has the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's true. So Paul says, Timothy, give your life for this. It's true. And it's the only truth that can set the world right. Second, Timothy, give your life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Endure, because the gospel cannot be stopped. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Timothy, pick the winning team. That's Jesus Christ. The gospel can't be stopped. I remember, you know, as a kid on the playground, it's my turn to pick teams. I didn't try to pick a losing team. I tried to pick a, a dominant team, right? I didn't care if, um, if we were completely stacked. Uh, you know, we would get our stacked team, and then I didn't feel bad about mocking and taunting the other team, right? I just, I wanted to win. That was the point, Stack the team. I, I want to be on a team that wins. I want to pick stocks that always go up. I don't want to pick stocks that go down. I want to win. I, I, that's what I want. Paul says, Timothy, the gospel always wins. Listen to these words from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. The author alludes to another day in which the world was shaken, so to speak. It's when God came down and he delivered the law on Mount Sinai and that mountain was shaking and it was frightening to God's people. And he says, you know what? There's going to be another day when the earth is shaken, but this time it won't just be localized on Mount Sinai. It's going to be the entire globe. And what will happen is anything and everything that's not attached to the kingdom of God will just fly off. But anything and everything that is attached to the kingdom of God will remain. Therefore, invest your life in the kingdom of God because the gospel cannot lose. The gospel will prevail. Do you remember that great story in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, I think, where uh, the Moabites hire the pagan prophet Balaam because they want to hire him to curse the nation of Israel and curse God's chosen people. Because they've been wiping out other enemies, and so if Balaam curses them, maybe the Moabites can defeat the Israelites in battle. So they go send some messengers, say, look, we'll offer you all the money you can even imagine, right? more than you need, if you'll just go out and curse Israel so we can defeat them in battle. And Balaam uh, gets a word from the Lord and says, God says, don't do it. So he says, no, I can't do it. Well, they send another set of messengers. 
And this time Balaam kind of convinces himself, well, maybe this is okay, in fact, with God. So he starts down on his journey. He's riding on his donkey to go and curse the Israelites. And as the donkey is going along, the donkey, not Balaam, the prophet, but the donkey stops in the road because he sees the angel of the Lord standing there with his sword drawn, right, ready to strike down donkey and prophet. Right? And the donkey's like, no, bad idea. So he turns this way right, and goes out into the field. So Balaam beats him. It's a stupid donkey. Get back on the road. So the donkey goes back. There's the angel of the Lord again, right? Sword drawn. Donkey goes this way. So Balaam beats him again. Stupid donkey, right? Donkey gets back on the pathway, sees the angel of the Lord about to strike him down, and he pushes against the, the, the row uh, in a vineyard, and then he just lays down, and Balaam gets out his whip again, and he's like, stupid donkey, stupid donkey. Remember how the story goes? And then the donkey goes, stupid prophet, right? What are you doing? And to me, the best part of the story is, is, is not that the donkey speaks, but that Balaam talks to his donkey, right? It's like, whatever, right? And so they just enter this dialogue. It's a stupid prophet. You're telling me to do something that is against God. And at that point in time, finally, Balaam looks up and he sees the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. And Balaam gets off the donkey and falls on his face. And he realizes you don't want to fight against God. God's kingdom will prevail. The gospel will win. Paul says to Timothy, gospel's not only true, but the gospel will conquer. Timothy, I'm in prison, but the gospel's not in prison. You cannot imprison the gospel. Third, endure for the sake of the gospel. Stick with Jesus because God rewards endurance. Verse 11, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Now, I will confess to you that um, I am not, I'm not a poet. I'm more of a math guy. And here is Paul. He's normally very propositional, very clear in his statements, direct. But then he uh, tries to basically land his point by quoting a poem. I remember in seminary they used to tell us, you know, great sermon, three points and then a poem. But I'm, I don't really understand poems sometimes. And what's happening here is, Paul is quoting something that they already knew, right? It's, it's a poem or it's a hymn that they had all memorized, they had sung. And as with all poetry, it synthesizes a lot deeper and more complex theology in just a few words. And so what I want to try to do is I'm going to try to get at the big idea of the poem and then we'll break it apart, right? And understand, hopefully, each of the stanzas. The big idea, I think, is this. God rewards our courageous faith, but if we shrink back, we miss out on his best. Now, this is the big idea of the poem, in my opinion. God rewards our courageous faith, but if we shrink back, we miss out on his best. Now, this is how the poem is normally understood. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign. Most people understand that, or many people, that that refers to those who have eternal life. And then the second two phrases... If we deny him, he also will deny us. Or if we are faithless, refers to those who do not have eternal life. So if you are from an Arminian background, the normal interpretation from an Arminian background is this. Paul is referring in this hymn to people who are genuine believers, but because they don't stand up for Jesus, they lose their faith. 
That's an Arminian perspective. These are genuine believers who don't stand up for Jesus, and as a result of not standing up for Jesus, they lose eternal life. From a Calvinist perspective, they see this to say, no, these are actually not genuine believers. These are people who uh, act like believers. Maybe they're around the church or they say they're believers, but when they don't stand up for Jesus, they prove they were never saved to begin with. It's not that they lose eternal life. They just show that they didn't have it, right? The first group are losers. Second group are what I'd call posers. Now, let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a point in time where you have not stood up for Jesus? Or where you had an opportunity to publicly declare that Jesus Christ is the most important person in your life and you hesitated and you pulled back. Let me tell you a story. A few years ago, I was on an airplane and I was the first to uh, sit down in my row. And this was not one of my better moments, but I was sitting there and I literally, I began to pray, God, please, uh, please have someone sit here who doesn't want to talk. Because I had a book that I wanted to read, and I was kind of tired, and I was like, you know, Lord, please just send somebody who does not want, you know, really doesn't want to talk to me, or send somebody who's already a Christian, they have eternal life, or a non-Christian who doesn't really want to engage in dialogue right now, because I'm tired, and I just want to read. I mean, yeah, it wasn't my great moment, but that's, that was what I was thinking and praying in my, my mind. And so this guy sat down, and we began to talk. He was a, a talker, and so we start talking, and we go, oh, okay, we're talking, talking, and then an opening came for the gospel. And I saw it, it was clear to me, and I just stepped back and I let it pass. And then the conversation went another direction, and it stopped, and I sat there just feeling guilty. I felt so guilty, and so I started praying again. I'm like, okay, Lord, if he wants to talk again, I'll talk about the gospel. Okay, Lord, please let him, let him want to talk again. Father, stir up another conversation so I can share Jesus with him. I don't need to read my book, and I don't need to rest. I want to share Jesus. Please let me talk to him about Jesus. And I looked over, and he was sound asleep. So I said, okay, Lord, please wake him up. Father, wake him up so we can talk about Jesus, because I promise this time I will not pull back. I will not be selfish. I won't shrink from the gospel. Or please wake him up, wake him up, wake him up, wake him up. So he did. He woke up. When the plane landed, he woke up. And he grabbed his bag and he said, nice talking to you. And he was gone. So did I put my eternal life in jeopardy? Did I put his eternal life in jeopardy? I'm going to tell you what I think is a better way to look at this poem, and it's this. Eternal life is a free gift. Nothing you can do to earn it, and nothing you have to do to keep it is actually a gift. It's that good. At the same time, God rewards courageous faith, and when we as believers say, I will live my life for Jesus Christ, he rewards us. If we don't, we suffer loss. It's not the loss of eternal life, but it is the loss of the opportunity for reward from God. So let me unpack the details now of what I think is happening in this poem. First phrase is this. If we died with him, with Jesus, we will also live with him. I don't think death here is talking about a literal physical death. If so, how would the church recite the poem, right? It's kind of obvious. I think he's talking about identification with Christ. This is exactly the same vocabulary that Paul uses in the book of Romans. So mark your place here in 2 Timothy and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 8. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So it seems to me that either Paul wrote wrote that poem or he borrowed from that poem because he is using exactly the same vocabulary. He's talking about our identification with Christ. Again, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. That is, the moment that you believe, God places you into Christ and Christ into you. So when he sees you, he sees Christ, and he sees all of Christ's experiences in history, so to speak. That is, his death counts as your death to sin and to death itself, because you are also identified with his resurrection. As Christ died, so you died with Christ. As Christ was raised from the dead, so you've been raised from the dead, meaning you possess now eternal life because God sees you in Christ, and Christ has eternal life. He has a life that cannot be touched again by death. Because you are in Christ, you also possess the life of God's Spirit in you. And so practically speaking, you have power not only over death, but you also have power over sin in your life right now. Verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. That is, because you are in Christ, you can say no to sin. Right? The poem captures that in one single line. You are identified with Jesus Christ. Second, if we endure we will also reign with him. That is, if we endure for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will also reign with Jesus Christ. Remember, the the theme of this paragraph is endurance. Turn back again to 2 Timothy and read with me in chapter 1. Endurance for the gospel, and I think the reason Paul chose this particular poem is it has that exact same word, endurance, which is his theme. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Chapter 2, verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 10, you followed my teaching, my conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at happened to me at Antioch at Iconium and at Lystra what persecutions i endured and out of all of them the lord delivered me indeed all who desire to live godly in christ jesus will be persecuted chapter 4 verse 5 but you be sober in all things endure hardship timothy fulfill your ministry pass the gospel along to generation after generation after generation And in so doing, understand that you will have to suffer. You will have to sacrifice. So endure. That's the context, in a sense, not just of this paragraph, but of the whole book. Paul says it's worthwhile because if we endure, we will reign with Jesus. The seed of David, God's chosen king who will return and establish his kingdom on earth. When he does so, you will reign with him. Now, to understand what he means, you've got to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, God made Adam and Eve, man and, fe- man and woman, male and female, in his image. And he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over all of my creation. 
That is, live in relationship with one another and live in relationship with me and exercise my authority over all that I have created. Right? Take my honor, my glory, my name, my reputation, my power, and spread it throughout all of the earth. That's why I have designed you and only you in my image. And the fall did not change God's plan for mankind. In fact, after the flood, God comes to Noah and he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule and reign over all of creation. You're not going to be able to do it nearly so well because you are broken and you want to make your own kingdom. But the reason that I made you and your calling is so that you would represent me on the earth. We see that reflected as well. Psalm chapter 8. Yet you have made him, that is mankind, male and female, you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. What is God's plan for man? To rule and reign with Jesus Christ. This is the reward of endurance, reigning with Jesus Christ. Prophet Daniel was given a vision of the end times and he wrote this. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints, that's us, of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Daniel got a vision of the Son of God returning and ruling and reigning, wiping out all earthly kingdoms, setting up his kingdom. And who ruled with him? Well, his people. The book of Revelation carries the same theme, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and what will they do? They will reign upon the earth. This is the celebration song that's happening around the throne of God, anticipating the return of God's Son. And there is a special place for those believers who choose to remain faithful and to live just for the gospel of Jesus and for the return of his son, of the son of God to the earth. Jesus promised this to the church, Revelation chapter two. He who overcomes, that is he who endures and remains faithful, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And then Jesus quotes to the church, Psalm chapter two, which was originally written to Jesus himself. And he says, now this Psalm that applies to me ruling over the nations applies to you because you rule and reign with me. Now, what that will look like exactly, I don't know. I don't know. You know I'm, I'm currently in negotiations with God that I want Colorado or Oregon or Utah. You know, I want some place that's got mountains and clear rivers, but I don't know what it's going to look like. But I know this. You and I were made for satisfying and fulfilling work, right? You were made uniquely. There there are things that God designed you to do and enjoy doing. And when you are in the kingdom, you are going to have the opportunity to exercise all of those gifts in dominion over the earth on behalf of the glory of Jesus Christ, right? Creating things or recreating things or arranging things or ordering things or making things better, all for the glory of God. That's the reward, but there's, there's more, There's more. Remember last week we looked at these three analogies. uh, the, The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And we said with each analogy, there is a reward attached. Right? With each analogy, there's a reward attached. So let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2 
and read with me verse 4. 2 Timothy 2, verse 4. Paul says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Why? So that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul says, why do we make these sacrifices? So we can please the one who brought us into the army, so to speak. So we can please the one who brought us into the family. We're good soldiers of Jesus Christ because one day we can stand before him and we can hear him say, well done. Right? You chose well. You lived for what really mattered. You endured for the sake of the kingdom of God. Well done. Can you imagine standing in front of Jesus and he says to you, you really lived well. You lived so well. And there's a smile on his face as he, as he welcomes you into his kingdom. Jesus alludes to this In the parable of Matthew chapter 25, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. See, someday we will stand in front of Jesus Christ and he will evaluate our lives. How wonderful would it be for him to say, well done, right? But there's more. There's the reward of sharing Christ's crown of victory. Chapter two, verse five. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Literally, this is, he does not uh, receive the, the Stephanos, the, the crown of victory. Remember, in, in Paul's day, there were actually uh, four Panhellenic games. That is, four sets of games in which any Greek state could participate. Right? There was uh, the Olympic Games, the Pythian Games, the Isthmian Games, and the Nemean Games. And whoever was a a victor in any of the events received a Stephanos, that is a laurel, a a crown that was made of of branches of some plant. In the Olympic Games, the crown was made of olive branches. In the Isthmian Games, it was made of pine branches. In the Pythian Games, it was made of bay leaves. And in the Nemean Games, it was made of parsley. Okay, no kidding. It was a parsley crown. This is what Paul's talking about, 1 Corinthians 9. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a parsley wreath, but we one that doesn't perish. So the next time you're sitting in a restaurant and your plate comes out and it's got a little piece of parsley on it that you're you're not going to eat, right? You're not going to eat. You're going to pull it to the side. They're going to clear the plate. They're going to throw it in the trash. As you see that piece of parsley, I want you to think, okay, this is a visual aid. Do I want to live for parsley, right? Do I want to invest my life to receive a reward of parsley? See, if you live for your kingdom, your honor, your glory, your reputation, your wealth, your pleasure, if you live for that, if that is your deepest commitment in life, your life is parsley. On the other hand, if you live for the kingdom of God, which cannot be shaken, you will receive a crown that endures. Paul says it is, in fact, imperishable. You get to wear it, so to speak, for all of eternity. Peter says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, continue on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice, literally, with great rejoicing. He says, to the degree that you say, I'm I'm in. 
And I'm not 30% in or 50% in. I'm, I'm all in to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ. To that degree also you will share and celebrate when Jesus Christ takes his kingdom and his victor's crown. You can rejoice in celebration because you're fully committed to the kingdom of God. But there's more. There's the reward of celebrating with Christ's people. Chapter 2, verse 6. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Literally, uh, the farmer who labors to the point of weariness will be the first to receive his uh, share of the fruit. It's literally the fruit. And when we think of of fruit, we're so conditioned to think Galatians chapter 5, right? We think character. But that's not what fruit always means in the New Testament. In fact, in uh, John chapter 4, there's a story of Jesus when he's in a city in Samaria. And he says to his disciples, I want you to lift up your eyes and look unto the fields because the fields are white for harvest, right? The fields are ready for harvest. The only problem is that it was actually two months until the harvest. All right, so the disciples are a little bit confused because they lift up their eyes, they look at the fields, and they realize, well, actually, the fields aren't ready for harvest, Jesus. There's still two months until the harvest. Jesus, what are you talking about? That happened a lot, right? Jesus confused them a lot. He said to them earlier, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And they say, well, what's the deal? Does he have bread like tucked in the folds of his robes? We, we thought we were out of food. What's he talking about? Well, the food and the fruit are people. When he says, lift up your eyes, And look on the fields, they're white unto harvest. That's the moment when people from this Samaritan village who don't really know God, they don't understand who Messiah is, they're coming to Jesus and they're about to have their sins forgiven and understand that he is life himself. He's the water of life and they won't thirst again forever. And Jesus says, lift up your eyes to the harvest. The fields are, they're white. People are the fruit. People are the reward. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 2. For who is our hope or our joy or our crown of exultation and rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. He says, "You're, you're the fruit. You're the crown. You're the reward. How wonderful when we see Jesus and we gather together and we realize that we poured our lives into one another so that we would all be faithful to the kingdom. We celebrate together. You are, Paul says, you're our reward. Imperishable, enduring, and lasting. You're our fruit. You're our crown. People, right? Because people last. Now, I threw a lot of verses at you and actually, I will tell you, I, I held a bunch back. The way I do my notes, I always highlight in yellow the verses, right? I do the illustrations in orange and the structure is in pink. The reason I do that is because I'm colorblind. I can't see red and green. So those are the colors I use and yellow is the verses. And I have one page that's just yellow. It's just verse after verse after verse because I wanted you to see that the offer of rewards is everywhere throughout the Bible. And sometimes we feel a little bit guilty about that. We're like, well, shouldn't I just commit to Jesus because Jesus loves me and I love Jesus, right? Jesus loves me. This I know. The Bible told me, so that's enough. It just seems kind of greedy that I should want to also receive some kind of reward for faithfulness. I want you to listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. This is from a short article that he wrote. It's called The Weight of Glory. He said, there are different kinds of reward. There is the reward that has no natural connection to the things that you do to earn it. And it is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. 
Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. The proper rewards are not simply tacked onto the activity for which they are given, but they are the activity itself in consummation. You see what he's saying? If a man goes out and he says, well, I married her. Did you love her? No, I just married her because she's rich and I wanted to be rich. We'd say, man, you're, you're greedy. You're a jerk. But if he says, no, I married her because I love her. We say, well, that's the right reward. Marriage is the, that's the right reward for love. The rewards that Jesus offers are the right rewards for being faithful to him. You know, if you give your life for Jesus Christ because you love him so much, how wonderful will it be to stand before him and he says, well done. Well done. Congratulations. I mean, anytime that we've had somebody, an authority in our lives that we respect and we love and we honor, we want to hear from them. Well done. We want their approval. That's natural. That's normal. Or to have Jesus say, you know, I've conquered. I've conquered sin. I've conquered death. I've conquered all the kingdoms of the earth. And you lived for this moment. Come, rejoice with me. Celebrate with me. Labor with me. And here, look at these people over here. They sacrificed as you did. Let's celebrate together. Let's live together. That's the right reward. Listen to Paul's words in chapter 4. Verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to every single person who has loved his appearing and lived for his kingdom. Church, that's who we want to be. Now, next phrase, and this is the most difficult one. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Now, I don't think this means that a genuine believer will lose eternal life. I don't think that this means a person who's just professing to believe but then doesn't stand up for Jesus shows they never had eternal life. I think this is written to the church and for the church. Notice that every personal pronoun in this poem is we. Right? Right? We. If we died with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure with Christ and for the gospel, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Right? This, is a, this is a poem or a hymn or a recitation that the church would all say together for one another. And I don't think they're saying, hey, guess what? Let's sing this together. You might not be saved and you might not be saved and you're about to lose your salvation and you're going to too. You better be faithful or else. I mean, that's not what the church is doing here, right? Here's what the church is doing. They're saying, come on. Let's be faithful together. Why? Because God loves to reward us and he's generous and we want to be in that moment when Christ returns celebrating together. On the other hand, if we don't, we will lose the opportunity for that celebration and reward. Remember the context. Paul is sacrificing his life for the gospel. And he's saying, Timothy, Give your life for the gospel. Don't hold anything back. But Timothy, you need to know not everyone is willing to do that. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia, that is, all who are a part of the body of Christ in Asia, they turned away from me. When I needed people to step up in my defense in Rome, they turned away. They were ashamed of me. They were ashamed of Jesus. They were ashamed of the gospel. Among those are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Timothy, don't be like them. 
Be one who stands for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Certainly, Timothy remembered uh, the story of Peter. When Jesus was arrested, and Peter was confronted. Peter, you're, you're one of them, aren't you? You're from Galilee. We hear your accent. You sound like a Galilean. I think we've seen you with his followers. We've seen you with Jesus. Peter, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And what did he say? No. The word to deny means to say no, literally. Peter said, no, I'm not one of his. No, I'm not. I don't belong to him. He's not mine. And when he said it the third time, the rooster crowed, and he caught Jesus' eye, and he wept. He wept because he hadn't stood with his friend. He suffered loss. I want you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I think what this poem is alluding to is the judgment seat of Christ, which is the judgment at which believers' lives are evaluated. Not non-believers, but believers. The believer's life is evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. So what is the building? The building is the church. The building is the church. The foundation is Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you know, I was the first to bring the gospel to you, so I laid the foundation. Now others are coming along and they're building on that foundation. But you need to be careful how you build on that foundation. Do you invest in the body of Christ, the, the building which is Jesus, the family of God, or do you go off and build your own thing? Verse 11, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That is, there's only one foundation that's going to withstand the shaking, and it is the kingdom of God. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through, through fire. Right? We, we normally, we hear fire, we think hell, but there's a fire that will evaluate our lives, Christians. And there's a fire that will evaluate our lives. Did we build with Gold, silver, precious stones? Did we invest in the kingdom of God? Well, that will remain. Did we build actually with wood, hay, and straw? Well, when the evaluation of our life comes through, all is burned up. We're not burned up, but our life is burned up. We live for parsley, right? We live for a parsley crown. When fire hits it, it's gone. But Paul says, but he himself will be saved, but it'll smell like smoke, right? It'll be clear that he did not live wisely. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, John says, now little children, that is children, my, my children in the faith, believers, part of the body of Christ, abide in Jesus, that is remain in intimate fellowship with Jesus so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. When he appears, will we be bold and confident because we, we realize, yeah, we did, we live for the kingdom of God. We invested in the lives of others. We passed on this treasure, this entrustment to future generations. Well, we will have confidence before him. 
John says again in 2 John verse 8, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Christians, our lives will be evaluated. How wonderful it would be to stand in front of Jesus and he says, well done. How sad it would be to stand in front of Jesus and he says, no. The reward that I had planned for you, I I cannot give you because you lived for yourself. Now, this is really heavy. In church, we need to take this very soberly, but you also need to remember, it may be you look back at your life in the past and you go, so much time wasted. Remember, God loves to give. As he said in the prophet Joel, the years that the locusts have eaten, God restores. God loves to be generous. Paul said, forgetting what lies behind. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. My blasphemy, my aggression, my murder, my imprisonment. He said, I don't worry about those things because I know whom I have believed and he is gracious and kind. And so today I choose to live for Jesus Christ. Today I choose to live thinking forward. This is really heavy, really heavy. And so I think that's actually the point Paul is making with the last stanza here. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's a heavy thing to think about denying Jesus. And he says, and yet remember this, if we are faithless, God is always faithful. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, then you bear his name. And he will be faithful to you. You have eternal life and you will have eternal life forever. You belong to Jesus. We live, in a sense, out of this place of deep security in our relationship with Christ. Why not then live for the crown that endures? So how do we apply this? Church, we need to remember that all of our choices in life have consequences. That's just the moral order of the universe that God has created. If you choose to disbelieve in Jesus Christ, that is your choice and you will spend eternity away from him because you chose not to believe in him. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life with God. Those are significant choices and significant consequences. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, each day you will have opportunity to stand up for him, to make uh, people know that publicly that you belong to Jesus. There's nothing more important in your life than your relationship with Jesus. Will you stand up with him or will you shrink back? Paul is just saying there are consequences to those things. Again, if I can summarize, I would say this. God rewards our courageous faith, but if we shrink back, we miss out on his best. So, church, let's not live for parsley, right? Let's live for what truly and genuinely lasts. Let's live for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, you know, with your roommates, with your family, at your job, in school, with your professors, in your neighborhood, wherever God has called you to be, be all there for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. As we close, I want you to take just a few moments silently and ask God to give you opportunities this week to take a risk, to to make a sacrifice to stand for Jesus Christ. Let's just take a few moments silently before the Lord and then I'll close this in prayer. Every Saturday I come up here and I walk through the auditorium And I pray, and I walk up and down each aisle, and I pray. And I pray that God would uh, do a work in our hearts. I pray that um, everyone that he wants to be here, that there'd be no barriers to any of us um, us coming and being here and and worshiping. And I acknowledge that um, 
there's no sermon that can, uh, can change lives in the way that God wants to change them. And I also remember and reflect about all the really big decisions that people have made, even in these moments sitting here. And so I walked yesterday and I prayed for us, for each of us, that there would be nothing in our hearts that we would hold back from Jesus. That we would truly, genuinely believe that the gospel is true. The gospel wins. It cannot be held back. And that we can live our lives in a way that genuinely pleases Jesus. That that was my prayer for each and every one of us. That's my prayer for, for you in this moment. Father, I pray that we would stand up for Jesus. I pray that we would endure for the sake of the gospel. I pray that we would believe so deeply, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, that what you are building is all that remains. I pray, Father, that would cause us to look at the people around us differently and we would choose to serve and sacrifice and give our lives so that they can know your son, Jesus. Father, give us courage this week. Give us boldness. Give us confidence in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great week standing for Jesus. We'll see you next week.